is Strictly John Keith. Strictly John Keith on City Talk 105.9. Hello, I'm John Keith, and welcome to Strictly John Keith on City Talk 105.9. My guest on this edition is one of the country's leading football authors and journalists. His 2008 book, Inverting the Pyramid, winning the National Sporting Club Football Book of the Year. That was a definitive volume on the global history of football tactics, a subject he spoke on with great authority when I interviewed him before a live audience at Liverpool's Blue Coat Theatre. His latest book is of particular interest on Merseyside. It's titled The Anatomy of Liverpool, A History in Ten Matches, and it's a great read. It's a warm welcome to the show to Jonathan Wilson. Hi, John. How are you doing? Hi, Jonathan. Nice to have you on. And, of course, just to remind people, if they need it, you also write for The Guardian, Sports Illustrated, World Soccer, and you're founder and editor of the quarterly football magazine, The Blizzard. Um, now, before we get onto the subject of your latest fascinating book, um, just tell me how your interest in football tactics and formations developed, because you have become an acknowledged expert on the subject. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I was quite lucky in many ways that, um, I mean, I wasn't very good at football, I mean, which is putting it mildly, I was absolutely dreadful at football, uh, but, you know, always loved the game. Um, yeah, my, my dad was a season ticket holder at Sunderland from, from immediately after the Second World War, yeah. and he took me to my first game when I was five, and, and I guess without really realising it, the way I was sort of analysing games, where I was looking at games, was in in a tactical way that that you know my, my brain was always more depth than my body so I I tried to sort of <laughs> yeah. to to rationalise it rather than you know looking at the physical side of things yeah uh, and then you know after my first book behind the curtain which is about Eastern European football after that came out you know I was thrashing around some ideas with my agent and my editor and and I suggested maybe there's something in in tactics yeah and um, my editor was actually very sold on the idea already he he'd commissioned a book. On the history of tactics, from I don't know if you remember him, Peter Ball. He used to work. Oh, I do indeed. I knew Peter. Yes. And and sadly, yes. he, you know, he he died before he could finish the yes, book. Yes, he so, did. I remember. So the editor was was already very keen on the idea, um, and and so you know I wrote that, and it became an obsession that, you know, I, I blew the advance and more by going to Argentina and Brazil and Russia and Ukraine, you know, tracking down. Uh, you know, the great coaches and the great thinkers on the game, mm. uh, and then I, I was you know, I was just fortunate that the, the book seemed to catch the wave, the tactical wave that was coming. And you know, I think you, you, if you look at at how newspapers, how magazines, how television even covers football, there there is way more now with tactics than, than there was ten years ago. That what Gary Neville does on a Monday night is something that ten years ago just didn't exist. Exactly. I, guess, I guess Andy Gray maybe begun the process, and I think there is now that that real groundswell of interest in tactics and. and as I say, my book was just fortunate it caught that wave, and so it got the sales and publicity because it, it filled a need that, that that you know that it just developed. Well, absolutely right. Um, but I mean, when you look at a match, do you do you cut through the passion and the you know and the uh, and the sort of the emotion of it to look at the the fine detail of the tactics? Is that is that the way your brain's developed now? I, I think it is. I mean, I, I, I suppose I have two hats when I go to games. So if mm. I go to a Sunderland game with my mates and I've been for a couple of pints first, <laughs> yeah, yeah, then, yeah. you know, I, I'm really not thinking that tactically. No, no. Uh, if, I'm, if I'm sitting in the press box, then, you know, uh, when a magazine or newspaper employs me to write on a game, what are they expecting? They're clearly expecting some kind of tactical analysis of it. Yes. But I, th I think there is a danger, actually, of, of separating out the tactics that... You know, you do get tactical fundamentalists who see the game as purely being about, you know, almost this chess game with yes, players. Yes. Well, I think that's misleading. I think everything's connected. That 
you know, the motivation of a team, the, the ability of a team, the physicality of a team, and the tactics that they all go together. And so, you know, it's like saying, what's the most important thing in a human body? Is it the bones? Is it the blood? Is it the muscles? Is it the nerves? Well, they, none of them work without the others. And I think yeah, it's the same a, in football. That, what's a good point, yeah. So I just say that everything sort of feeds together and that they actually aren't separable. Mm. Well, that leads me on. I mean, we saw in the last Mersey derby at Goodison an absolutely enthralling game. But as Alan Hansen said on Match of the Day, defences were just defence was just thrown out of the window. Um, what's your take on that? I mean, is this was that a question of um, tactics uh, being uh, subsumed by the emotion of the moment, or or what was it in your eyes? Well, I think certainly tactics and a sense of control were, were certainly lost in that yeah. final 10-15 minutes, which was just extraordinary football. Yes. Uh, and, and I guess that kind of game, you wouldn't get it other than in a derby. You know, that, that, or you know, maybe a, a huge cup tie or something. That's yeah. a game in which nobody's thinking, oh, you know, a point would be a good result here. People, you know, they're just trading blows, desperate for the win. Yes. It was a. Boyd someone, on by a I think the Sunday Express headline was slugfest, which I thought was terrific use of the language. It was a slugfest, wasn't it, really? Absolutely, and, and, and enthralling for that, you know. Yes. And again, I, you know, people seem to think that I only care about these these chess matches. Well, you know, I, I love the very tactical games, but you know, if you don't love games like like that match, then you don't really love football. That's just a, a, a fantastic thing to watch. Here, here, and, here. and even when you're not from, yeah, I'm from Sunderland. I've got yes. no connection to Merseyside. No, no. no. Uh, but, you know, I'm enthralled watching that. I'm caught up in that. Um, don't really care who wins. And it's just fantastic to watch. And that really, that last 10, 15 minutes is the essence of what great football is. Yeah. Jonathan, th- th- there seem to be fads in tactics, don't you? Uh, uh, you no, no, with, with one formation suddenly in fashion, then giving way to another. One of the current terms I've noticed is hidden centre forward. But correct me if I'm wrong, didn't the Hungarians do something similar 60 years ago? Yeah, they did, absolutely. Yeah. The, uh, Nando Hidakuti, the, their yeah, number nine, yeah. played as what we would today call a false nine. He he dropped back so that the, the England centre-half, if you look back to the game, what, 60 years ago, yeah. um, when Hungary won 6-3 at Wembley. And, and really, the, the reason that they unpicked England so easily, I mean, I think you can argue they had better players anyway, but the, sure. the reason that their their uh, superiority was so marked was that Harry Johnston, the, the England centre-half, the, uh, the central defender, he was used to having a big number nine playing up against him, and you know, he would mark him tightly. Yes. And if you take that number nine away, he's got space left to mark, and he doesn't know what to do. And if you read his autobiography, <laughs> yeah. he said he, he was just bewildered. Did he did he follow the play? Did he go deep into midfield and leave space between the two fullbacks, yeah. or did he stay where he was and, and let Hidakuti have all this time and space to to create yes, the play quite. to make late runs? Mm. And that, but actually, if you, if you look right back, you can see that England struggled against that type of player. For years, I mean, um, Matthias Sindelar, the great Austrian player in the in the mid thirties, caused England huge problems. Mm. Uh, Vesvolod Bobrov, who came over with Dynamo Moscow tourists in nineteen forty five, he had huge success against a string of not just English but, but British teams yes. against Rangers, uh-huh. against Cardiff as well. Um, Jose Lacassia, the Argentinian in nineteen fifty one, had caused England huge problems. So that that withdrawn player who who plays between the midfield and the uh, and the defence, yeah. who, who who doesn't make himself easy to mark always cause huge problems. And then you bring that forward to, to say, you know, to, to, to the 90s, you look at people like Eric Cantona or Gianfranco Zola or Dennis Bergkamp. Sure, and yeah. although they would have a centre forward ahead of them, they still occupied that, that sort of murky grey mm. area that, that 
Is he the holding midfielders to pick up? Is he the centre-backs? And it, it's really, I think, only in the last 10 years or so that English football has become comfortable or more comfortable with, with, with dealing with that kind of player. Yeah, yeah. And it seems, as I say, it seems to be coming back again. I've, I've seen quite a lot of references to it in recent weeks, actually. Yeah, well, I, mean, I think the difference now is that there's, there's no centre-forwards yeah, ahead of him. So yeah, sure. Y- yeah. Y- you look at a, a Dalgleish or a Bergkamp, I mean, they, they were a number 10 playing with a, you know, a Rush or an Ian Wright or mm. whoever in front of them. Mm. But what's interesting now is that they often don't have a play in front of them. So the way Messi plays for Barcelona, he has the two wide men cutting in, or the way that Alexis Sanchez plays for Chile. I and mean, we saw that again, England having huge problems yes, dealing with did. that yes, um, yes. In, in the friendly. Uh, and I think it's the fact they don't have a player in front of them uh, that, that makes them so difficult. But yeah, there's nothing new in football. If you look back to how Corinthians played in the 1890s with Geo Smith, that's exactly how he played. Is it really? Uh, yeah. In, a, in yeah. as far as you can tell from contemporary accounts, and obviously there's no video footage. Really? But, but they right? talk yeah. about him. I, I found an entry um, as uh, like an encyclopedia of sport, and C.B. Fry has written some of the, the football great entries. C.B. Fry, eh? And yeah. he talks about Geo Smith sitting mm. deep and ca- causing these problems. So. Wow. These ideas of where you find space on the pitch, and you're absolutely right, they, they come in vogue and then they, I guess a team, your defences learn how to deal with it and so they drift away again and then, mm. yeah, they come back. I mean, you can even make an argument now that strike partnerships, a fad that had, or you know, a way of playing that had begun to disappear. And you look at how Manchester City play now or, yes. or how Liverpool play with a, a proper strike partnership, yeah. defences have forgotten how to deal with it because if, you're, if, you're, you know, if you've got two centre-backs dealing with one centre-forward, well, one marks and the other one covers and they get very used to that and it's quite an easy way mm. for a defence to play. Mm. If suddenly both of those central defenders have to take on marking roles and if they get beaten and there's nobody behind them, yeah, that, that's a, wor- mm. a world of problems that in the 80s we wouldn't have thought of as a problem because we were used to it. And now defences are having to relearn how to play against the likes yeah. of Sturridge and Suarez or um, Negredo and Aguero. Yes, exactly. Yeah, And now <clears throat> we obviously have a World Cup finals looming next summer. Um, what do you envisage, Jonathan, as possibly the next big thing in football tactics? Or rather, what will be rediscovered again? As you've said, there's nothing new under the sun, but what might we see in Brazil? Well, I think there's, there's two slightly different issues there. In terms of how I think tactics will, will develop, I think we'll, we'll continue to see the speed, intensity of the game increasing. Uh, I think we might start to see, precisely because of this issue you know, just mentioned of having two centre-backs often marking one centre-forward, I think we'll start to see one of those centre-backs drifting into midfield. That He'll become a, you know, a libero again, as Franz Beckenbauer was, or, yeah. or Jotan Scarea, something like that. And I, I guess we're slightly seeing that with um, the way Barcelona used Mascherano, or the way Javi Martinez has been used at Bayern Munich, that they play a midfielder in the back four, yeah. and, and he, so he's comfortable at stepping out. But I, I think... In terms of tactical innovation in Brazil, Chile perhaps accepted. We're, we're unlikely to see anything that new, just because I think international football has drifted so far behind club football. Ah, yes. Um, yeah. And I think yeah. as the game became systematised in the 60s and, and, and early 70s, the, the level of training you need, the level of mutual understanding you need between players, you get that at club level because they, they train together every day, they play yeah, 50 games a season, whatever. International level, that's almost impossible. Coaches have players for, what, a week, six times a year. They maybe play 10 or 12 games in a year. So it's very, very hard to get that sophistication of, of tactical approach that you can get at club level. Yes. I, I think what you see at international level is, is a much simpler form of the game. And, and I think international coaches really have to sort of rein back their ambitions. Right. Um, 
And I think that's probably one of the reasons why the World Cup has tended to be more defensive in the Champions League in recent years. But I think if you if you look at the Champions League over the last decade as an average of something like 2.8, 2.9 goals per game, the World Cup over the last decade is something like 2.4. Oh. So you're talking about half a goal per game less. Mm. And I think the reason is international coaches think, right, we can get the defence right. That's, it's not difficult. It's not that hard to sort out a, a defence. That's, that's basically... You know, it doesn't matter who your defensive partners are. It's the same kind of idea. But it's very clear this is right, this is wrong. And I, I was talking to Egil Olsen, the old Norway coach, last week, and, and he was saying exactly that, that the great thing about defending is it's black and white. This is right, this is wrong. Going forward with creativity, it's much harder. Yeah, yeah, it is. Um, yeah. And so the defences are just better drilled than the attacks. Yes. And, and it's, it's that much harder for the attacks to, to break down those defences. Well, we'll wait and see. Uh, we're all looking forward to it, of course. England are there, which uh, is good. Now, Jonathan, turning to your new book, The Anatomy of Liverpool, it's subtitled A History in Ten Matches. Now, you've written it in collaboration with fellow journalist and author Scott Murray. Um, what kind of selection process did you employ in whittling it down to ten from what? The 120-plus years and thousands of games of Liverpool's existence. Well, I mean, the, the actual process, we, we went out for a meal and we, we argued about it for, for three hours did. over a well, exactly, couple of bottles of yeah. wine. Yeah. Um, but in terms of what we were looking for, uh, I mean, obviously you wanted a spread of games. You wanted to, to go right back of to course. the very earliest days. Mm. So, yeah, the, the book starts with uh, the 5-0 defeat to Aston Villa in 1899 that cost Liverpool the championship, um, which I, you know, actually turned out to be uh, a springboard for, for future successes. And, and as so often, defeats, I think often you, you learn a lot more from the, than, you, than you do from victories. Uh, That's so what we, Bill Shankly said on his first game in charge of Liverpool when they lost 4-0 at home to Cardiff. And he yeah. said, well, said we've, uh, we've learned a lot today because yeah. <laughs> you, you learn more in defeat than you do in victory. So there you are, you're quite right. Uh, so, so we wanted to, to go right back to the beginning, and then, then yeah, the, the most recent game is Istanbul in two thousand and five. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and to try to get a game that uh, either encapsulates an era, or was was a great game in itself, or sort of was a a, a crossroads game, a, a game at which the, the club yeah could have gone one way, could have gone the other, and and that game was was sort of decisive in in leading them down down one path or the other. So yeah, hopefully we've got a mix of you have wins and defeats of, of great games and significant games and in some instances games that sort of bring together all three yes well we'll talk about that in great detail uh, after this break i'm talking to jonathan wilson who's got a great new book just out the anatomy of liverpool a history in 10 matches we'll uh, in the next segment find out what those 10 matches are don't go away this is strictly john keith City Talk 105.9. Hello, I'm John Keith, and welcome back to Strictly John Keith on City Talk 105.9. My guest, the highly respected football author and journalist Jonathan Wilson, whose new book, The Anatomy of Liverpool, is a great read, not only for Anfield devotees, but football fans in general. Uh, Jonathan, you touched uh, in the last segment about the first uh, entry in these of these ten matches is a five-nil hammering at Aston Villa on April the 29th, eighteen ninety-nine. It was the final game of that season. Liverpool finished second, but you had a distinct rationale in choosing that, didn't you? Yeah, I mean, I think that was the game at which um, it was the first time Liverpool had a chance of winning the league, mm. and huge numbers of Liverpool fans went to Birmingham for, for the game. 
and it was a an, an absolutely crushing defeat. I mean, it wasn't a five nil where they let in four late goals, yeah, you know, as they chased the game. They you know they were I think four nil down after twenty one minutes, <laughs> um, so they got absolutely thrashed. And yet that was a springboard for for the future success under Tom Watson. Tom Watson, who I think is actually one of the the great underrated managers. I mean, I, I guess I've got my Sunderland hat on a bit when I say that. Well, he well he but, was, wasn't he? Yeah. But he he really was. Uh, I think in some ways the first manager that. Um, Previous to that, clubs had, had, you know, the directors had sort of had some kind of say in selection, but essentially the captain had, had picked the tactics. Yes. And he is he is the sort of secretary. He was the man who, who made the great Sunderland side of the 1890s and then was lured away by what at the time seemed extraordinary sums of money by Liverpool and, and won the title with them. Won it twice, in fact, with them. Yes. So he's the yeah. only man to have won the league title, the English league title, twice. Uh, with two different clubs. So there's four people. He's one of the four who've won it with different clubs, but the only one who's done it twice with mm. two different clubs. Yes, great. Well, as I say, it's interesting that you've picked defeats, and that's the first one. Now, another one in, in the 10 is also a defeat. It was the European Cup exit to Red Star Belgrade, or as you call them quite rightly, a lovely name, Cravenas of Vesda. I'm sure I've mispronounced it. Cravenas of Vesda, yeah. Exactly. I had we'll call him Red Star, though. Yeah, we'll call him Make it easier. But it's a lovely... It's a, it just looks lovely uh, looking at it on paper as well. But that was in November 1973, Liverpool losing 2-1 on the night at Anfield, going out 4-2 on aggregate. Now, that was to prove Bill Shankly's final European engagement as a manager. And I guess you've included that because, uh, of course, he resigned the following July. Paisley arrived, Bob Paisley. And it all changed, didn't it, Jonathan? Yeah, I, mean, I think that was, that was really key in terms of... Um I think I was going to say persuading. I think maybe convincing is a better word. Convincing Bob Paisley how you had to play to be successful in Europe. That Svesta were uh, technically a, a brilliant team, but yes. they were very good at just holding the ball. They kept possession. They were very patient, and they they really took the sting out of games. Um, I mean that that game at Anfield was sort of two fifteen twenty minute spells when Liverpool absolutely pounded them, yeah. and they just slowly sort of regained control by. By this very patient passing game, that they they just stop Liverpool having the ball, the, the crowd quietens down. Yes. An element of frustration, I guess, creeps into the Liverpool team, and I, I think it, it was a direction Liverpool have been heading in really you know, from from the early 60s, and, and certainly Shankly's side of the one league in '64 and the cup in '65. You watch that cup final in '65, which is another one of the games I choose. It's it's yes. a game where where they and Leeds are both incredibly patient. You know, it's, yes, they are. It's it mm. doesn't look like a game of the, of the era. You can see that mm. the Liverpool and, and and Leeds are sort of ahead of the the, the curve tactically. Yeah, I watched it recently with Ian Callaghan, and we were both amazed. He had he'd forgotten. It was almost like a chess match at times. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah. and the Daily Mirror on the Monday after that final. Uh, ran two pieces, sort of slaughtering the the, the, oh, the type yes. of football. It played was it, panned uh, as one of the worst cup finals seen, and oh yeah, absolutely. And, uh, Peter Wilson, their their big columnist, saying that yeah, I've been told this is where we have to play if we're going to win the World Cup next year, but. If if that's what it takes, well, I'd rather not win it. Mm. Uh, and I obviously changed his tune kind of by the following <laughs> July. But yeah. Um, yeah, there was a sort of a, a real sense of well, is this is this actually what we want football to be? Mm. So I, I think you know that that development was in progress, but I think it was really uh, the the defeat the defeat to Red Star to Svesta coming on the back of the nil nil draw against Bayern, which had been you know similar in in, in terms of the opposition mm. just holding the ball away from them. Um, a couple of other disappointing European exits. That that was when 
sort of the, the decision was taken. And you know, there's a famous story of, of all the coaches in the boot room the following day. That's right. Yeah, indeed. thrashing out and saying, yeah. "Look, this is what we've got to do." Yeah. Um, and I mean, it, 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 it intrigues me actually whether had Shankly remained in charge, and you you may well know the answer to this more than I do. But whether Shank, if Shankly had remained in charge, would they have made that that tactical shift, or was that Paisley was keen to do it, and, and he almost then then got the chance? I doubt if they would, and that's just an opinion. Uh, Bob Paisley was far more tactically aware than Bill was. Uh, yeah, and the players, that's kind of the impression I got. Yeah, the so. players now will say that. Ian Callaghan, you know, would say Shankly was the greatest motivator he knew, but Bob was the greatest tactician. And I think that's right. And as you know, in that um, boot room powwow after that defeat to Red Star, they decided that... Um, the centre-backs had to be changed. The centre-backs had to be football players as well as defenders. And that Larry Lloyd was there at the time. He went very quickly. Uh, and, of course, they eventually moved to uh, Phil Thompson, Alan Hansen, Mark Lawrenson, players who were yeah, ball-playing defenders, yeah. Yeah. I love the strange thing about Larry Lloyd, of course, is that he, he then went to Forest yes. and sort of, sort of learned how to, how to play that <laughs> That's way. That's right, he did. Uh, against all expectations. He so. was one of the first Liverpool players to leave and be successful after he left Liverpool. Very yes. few did. Which I think is always a sign of a, a tactically very astute team. Mm. I think you actually see it with Forrest even more so. Yes. Um, that players who left Clough's Forest really struggled. There's hardly any. I mean, and Nigel Clough, I guess, is, is the one ah. Liverpool fans will, will remember. Mm. Um, but they, you know, they, they, they left the, the, the structure of Forrest where you know, their, their attributes were, were sort of magnified by the tactical scheme. And then they found it very hard to replicate that style. Yes. So I, I, th- I think that is a, you know, it is a sign of a very good tactical team if players leaving it find that they, they can't quite attain the same level. Yeah, exactly. Now, we've spoken about two Liverpool defeats that you've chosen uh, in these 10 matches. But, of course, uh, the European glories loom large in your book, quite rightly, uh, including the first European Cup final triumph, that 3-1 win over Borussia Mönchengladbach in Rome in May 1977. I suppose, Jonathan, we could say this was the ultimate crowning of Liverpool's style change under Paisley. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's if you if you look back to to, to sixty five to the cup final, it, it's interesting to to a modern audience. To, um, I mean, I, I'm just about old enough to remember when when the FA Cup was the the absolute apogee of English football. Yes, I, yeah. I, I, and Shankly saying you know, Liverpool cannot be a big club until we've won the FA Cup. Yes. So even when they, they won the league the year before, that was almost a bigger triumph. Mm. And I think the next stage was then to win the European Cup. That. Yeah, there's, there's, you win the league, you win the FA Cup, and then you win the European Cup. And once you've won the European Cup, then, then that's absolutely it. You are one of the greatest, you know, one of the greatest yeah. teams in the world. That cannot be denied. Um, and it, it, you know, it was, as you say, the affirmation of, of what had happened after the defeat to, to, to Red Star in '73. And that final against Bussy Munch and Gladbach is an absolutely magnificent game of football. It is. Yes, it is. Uh, um, I mean, Bussy Munch and Gladbach were, uh, you know, a really, really good total oh, footballing yes. team. Mm. But it's extraordinary. Uh, Liverpool kick off and the, the ball goes straight to, um, I think it's Klinkhammer, the, the mm. left-back. And this is sort of in, after five seconds of a game. And his, his instinct, I'm sure an English player's instinct, would be to sort of trap it and belt it forward. Yes, it would be. He traps it and runs 60 yards across the field. <laughs> yes. And yes. gives it to Alan Siemens. You know, a wonderful player. He's what got a, a great player, goal. yes. Yeah. Fantastic yeah. goal in that game. Yeah. Yes, he did. Um, but, but Liverpool, I mean, really were... were 
significantly better than Borussia Mönchengladbach in that match. I mean, because this, the second goal, the goal, the goal that made it 2-1, didn't come to, what, 20 minutes from time, mm. a Tommy Smith header. Yeah. I, I guess there was always that anxiety, that, that sense of nerves there, and then the full nail penalty that settles it. Mm. Um, but really, you, you look at the game rationally, and, and Liverpool were, were much the better side and fully deserved to win. And yeah. to be that much better of a team who were clearly that good, I think suggests just how... How, how superb Liverpool were at the time. Yeah, yeah. There's a fantastic picture, uh, that awful word iconic, I hate it, but it is an iconic picture of Paisley and Ian Callaghan embracing. And, of course, Callaghan had been there all the way under Shankly. He was there before Shankly arrived, and so was Bob, of course. And there was the the journey Callie had made from the old second division to being a European Cup winner, and it did really... It was just a, a wonderful journey's end, almost rainbow's end, the pot of gold, although it was silver at the end, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And, um, yeah, I guess a Tommy Smith story as well. I mean, that was his... Oh, yes. I mean, yeah, it seems to depend exactly which games you count, but for some people it's 600th game, for some, some people it's 603rd game. And you know, it should have been his final game. Uh, yeah. He decided to stay on the extra season. Yeah. Uh, and that, you know, for him to... I mean, he wouldn't have played if it hadn't been for injury, would he? That's so right. No, he wouldn't. For him to score that decisive goal, just sort of yeah. that, that was the, the perfect end for narrative. Yes, it was. Well, Bob Paisley went on to win a total of 19 trophies in nine seasons in charge. And when he retired, he was asked to name his favourite memory. Here's what he said. Oh, without a doubt, that's got to be the first European Cup success in Rome. Everything went right there. Uh, Rome was always one of my special places. I've been there during the war and that, and the, the type of weather that they have in the summer and that lends itself to liking it too. And uh, the, the whole setting of the Cup, the stadium was packed and, and everyone was there to enjoy themselves, the Germans and the Liverpool people. Everyone that was there were going to enjoy that. It was, it was, you could see this lending itself to good behaviour in that. And then the performance that the players had uh, to win the trophy for the first time and the first time that Liverpool had ever won. It was a very proud moment. And that's got to be the highlight. Nice words there, Jonathan, from Bob Paisley. Yeah, I mean, there's two things actually stand out there. One is that he talks about Rome as being a special place. Yes. And it's actually it's a strange thing. In the selection of 10 games, three of them are, are in that stadium in Rome and, and three at Anfield. So it's almost as if the Olympico yeah. is, is as much a part of Liverpool. I mean, it obviously isn't as much, but uh, yeah. in terms of significant games, it's played uh, an enormous role in, in, in Liverpool's history because, of course, the 84 European Cup final as well, and then the um, the UEFA Cup tie against Rome in 2001, which yeah. which we chose as sort of being Liverpool's return after the the wilderness years of the 90s. That was when they became a European force again. Yes, and another wonderful connection with Rome long, long before that was uh, the subject of Bob's team talk that night, because his team talk was, and the players have confirmed this to me, he said... I was in Rome on the back of a tank during the war and we won, We beat the Germans then and we're going to do it again. Now, what a team talk that was. You know? <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, but the other, the other thing in what he says there is him talking about the atmosphere in, in Rome that night. And, of course, when Liverpool next went there seven years later, it, it couldn't really be much more different. Well... I'm glad you raised that because I was just going to lead us on to that. After Rome 77, of course, Paisley's Liverpool with Keegan gone, but Mr Dalglish very much there. They retained the trophy against Bruges at Wembley in 1981, won it for a third time under his stewardship, beating Real Madrid in Paris. But 
this other game, another game you feature, you've just mentioned, the 1984 European Cup final, by which time Joe Fagan had succeeded Paisley. And, uh, well, they, the sides drew 1-1 in Roma's own Stadio Olimpico, and um, they proceeded to win it in the penalty shootout um, to win the crown for a fourth time. You've chosen that game, Jonathan. Uh, just tell us why. Well, I think you know, really, sort of, is the end of an era that that you know that was the the fourth of that that glorious sort of yeah. uh, eight season spell, the fourth European Cup. Uh, it sort of nicely bookended the, the first ones in Rome, the last ones in Rome. The extraordinary fact of having to beat, you know, being the away team, having to beat Roma in Rome. Yeah. Um, but then, of course, the, the, the tragic consequences—the you know, the, the fighting outside the stadium, oh, the, the, the ba- battles yeah. on the bridge—which yeah. clearly then, you know, had a had a bearing on on, on what happened the following year. It at high certainly school. did. I was there, and I saw, I witnessed the fighting after that '84 game. Very sadly, um, a nice quote after that game from Frank McGee in the Daily Mirror. He said, "No English soccer team will ever match what Liverpool achieved in the Olympic Stadium." Well, there you are. That's that's praise indeed. Um, I know it's a game you simply had to include. Now, here's um, here's Radio City's Clive Tilsley reporting on the decisive moment. And it's Alan Kennedy, the man who scored their European Cup final winner in Paris three years ago, who has the responsibility and the chance to win the giant trophy for them once again. Now, Kennedy took some penalties in that pre-season tournament in Rotterdam back in August, and I hate to tell you this, but he missed them both. I felt confident. Uh, I didn't particularly have a good game, but I really honestly felt confident uh, taking the penalty because uh, I'd had uh, a little bit of a practice on the uh, Monday at Melwood, and uh, I put it in the same spot then, and the goalkeeper didn't get that. So, And to be honest, I was confident, even though the rest of the lads were slightly... Doubtful uh, that I was going to hit, even hit the target. A European Cup final winner in Paris three years ago. Now can he score another from the penalty spot? Left-footed, strikes it, he scored! <laughs> Alan Kennedy has won the European Cup for Liverpool again! Well, that's good stuff, Jonathan, doesn't it? Eh? Uh, very uh, passionate, emotional reporting from Clive there. Yes, his voice was a lot higher than those, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah um, yes. I think, it was, that, I think it was excitement. Actually. Yeah, but there's that lovely link, of course, between Kennedy and Paisley. That when when Paisley is, is a you know, I guess in his, his teens, when he he'd gone from Hentley Hall to yes. to the the cinema in Houghtonly Spring, which yes, actually is, is, is where where my mum used to teach yeah. in Houghtonly Spring. Um, that on the way home he'd stop at the chipping. Alan Kennedy's mam was one yeah. of the one of the women who worked in the chip shop. Yeah, so. I used that in the Paisley book, didn't I? In the right. biography, yeah. Yeah, that's right. There was a wonderful connection between Bob and Alan Kennedy. And that was a great moment. Now, of course, many other great moments in Liverpool history, which you've charted in your book, The Anatomy of Liverpool. I'll be talking more to Jonathan Wilson after this break. One of the things we're talking about is the miracle of Istanbul. Don't go away. This is Strictly John Keith on City Talk 105.9. Hello, I'm John Keith and welcome back to Strictly John Keith on City Talk 105.9. My guest is Jonathan Wilson, who, with Scott Murray, has written a fascinating book, The Anatomy of Liverpool, which 
is a history of the club in 10 matches. Now, it's been some job to, as Jonathan was saying earlier, to pick out 10 matches, but they are intriguing. And he's included defeats, of course, which were uh, landmark games in the club's history. We've just um, been listening to uh, Jonathan and some uh, commentary clips of the European triumphs. But I suppose, Jonathan, it was absolutely inevitable and essential that you had to include the um, the miracle of Istanbul, Liverpool's remarkable 2005 comeback from 3-0 down to AC Milan at the Ataturk Stadium to draw 3-3 and then uh, claim another penalty shootout triumph. They they were very expertise at penalty shootouts and have been through since they were introduced, actually. Yeah, I think with penalties, there's sort of a self-perpetuating thing that if you win your first couple, you sort of think, oh, we're good at these. But if you're like England and you lose your first couple, it sort of, you know, it weighs on you and you sort of think that, well, this is just another way to lose a game. Um, So I I, I think, I mean, teams are actually, they're not involved in very many penalty shootouts. They're actually still a very rare thing. Um, So I think England have only actually been involved in in seven in the history, is that right? Uh, It would be, yes, around that. I'm not quite sure. Liverpool, I guess, slightly more than that. But I bet it's not more than, say, 20 in in competitive games. Uh, Or or certainly not in European games. So there is still that that rarity factor. And and I think that means a past performance, weirdly, does does still have a, a big psychological part to play. Yeah, I think they've only failed in two of about... 14 penalty shootouts in various competitions. Which so it's only 14, yeah. Yeah, yeah it's, so. oh, it's it's only around that. It's certainly not 20. No, yeah. No. So um, they, it, it's it's remarkable. But you, I know you were there at the Ataturk Stadium that night, weren't you? I was, and it's, I mean, I think by some margin, the most remarkable game I've ever been to. Is it, yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, uh, I mean, uh, I was going to suggest... Angola versus Mali at the Cup of Nations in 2010. Well, this you see, this is your broad sweep. Which, well, well that, that game was the the two days after the terrorist attack on the Togo ah, team bus. Ah, yes, yes. And yes. Um, so that that day, I think I'd written 11 pieces for for various papers on the terrorist attack see, and the atmosphere see. in Luanda because there's no other English journalist there. Wow. And then I had five match reports to do because suddenly the world <laughs> is interested in this game, which people wouldn't have cared about otherwise. No, exactly. And. After after seventy minutes, it was four nil to Angola. So you think you're pretty safe to to start writing, yes. and then slowly Marley start to come back. And when they scored two in injury time, you think, oh, Christ. that's incredible. <laughs> so so there's that game, but I mean, in terms of a yeah, the, the magnitude of uh, of Istanbul, mm. um, yeah, the the atmosphere in the stadium, everything around it, I mean. In in some ways, it was the worst possible choice of venue, but in some ways, that made it the best choice of venue. That just getting there was such an achievement. <laughs> yeah, I believe. Um, yes, yes. I mean, I, I landed uh, seven hours before kickoff, and I sort of toyed with the idea: should I go into town and drop my bag, or should I just go straight to the stadium? I'll be safe. I'll go straight to the stadium. Yes, yeah. Got in a cab. It wasn't a problem to get a cab, which is often can be a problem mm, at I know, the big European I know. games. Yeah, yeah. And after about an hour, I can see the stadium only about a mile away. And part of me thought, maybe I should get out and just walk across this sort of rough ground. But the taxi driver said, oh, no, it's only 20 minutes. You just have to go around this loop. And then, of course, anybody who was there knows you went went to the end of this loop, which was, you know, what, seven or eight miles into the hills. <laughs> and as soon as you turned the corner, just traffic and people and chaos and crawled and crawled and crawled. And I was with a couple of Australian Liverpool fans who I just met in the taxi queue. Yeah. Um, and you know, getting more and more stressed, and this bizarre moonscape—you know, this sort of—I mean, rough hillside, but also there'd been building work done, and so there was, you know, heaps of gravel and sand, and uh, and eventually, with about you know, 
I don't know, a mile and a half from the ground and no more than sort of half an hour will kick off. I decided, right, I've just got to run. Um, unfortunately, the, the, the accreditation centre for media was on that side of the stadium. Yes. Um, yes, no, got there dripping in sweat. I mean, it was like 30-odd degrees that night as well. Yes, I know it was very hot, yeah. And I, I literally, I, I sat down in my seat next to uh, Ian Chadband, who was at the Standard mm-hmm. at the time, is now at the Telegraph. Yes. Sat down next to him as they kicked off. And then, you know, within a minute, I'm kind of knowing down the, the uh, Maldini goal. Yeah. So, um, yes. But the, I mean, the, the really strange thing that night was... You know, at half time, I'd I had my piece all but written. You know, the adrenaline of the journey, I was sort of pumped up, so the words were sort of flowing. Yes, and obviously, three yes. 0 you kind of think, well, you know, it's done and dusted. And as soon as Gerard scored, I turned to Ian Chadburn, he turned to me, and I can't even remember which which of us. Yeah, I've read that in your book. Yeah, yeah. We're both clearly yeah. thinking it, yeah. and and that they're going to do this, they're going to come back. And I literally, you know, control A, delete, and just started the piece again. Yes. Uh, because I was, which is in, in retrospect is a crazy thing to have done, and yet the atmosphere in the stadium was such that um, I never I never doubted from that moment that Liverpool were going to win it. Yes, it's strange. I was, uh, I didn't go to them because I was emceeing uh, Liverpool's own official uh, European Cup final banquet dinner at Anfield and there was a Leicester businessman who'd taken a table and at half time he was physically in tears slumped over the <laughs> table and at the end of the game the stewards had to ask him to stop dancing on it <laughs> and I, I thought that sort of personified the amazing change it, it, I mean transformation in fortunes I've never seen anything like it it was just incredible I'll never ever forget that moment um I mean, it's just um, these games are just imprinted on your memory, aren't they? You don't you don't see many of them, of course, do you? No, but I mean that 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 whole uh, European run. I was working for the Financial Times at the time, so I was I was I, you know I was at certainly all the games at Anfield, yeah. uh, and obviously the the Stamford Bridge semi as well. Yeah. Um, but I mean the Olympiacos game as well. Oh is, yes, is, yes. Again, there was a, there was a strange sense of inevitability about, about that comeback, um, and it. You do get this at times in football, I guess in all sport, but in football that there is a weird sense of you know, whatever your religious beliefs or philosophical beliefs, you do get this bizarre sense of destiny at times. And I, I wish I knew what caused that, um, mm. but it was as if everybody in the ground sort of accepted that something bizarre was happening yes. and you couldn't change it. That's, yes. And even when Shevchenko had that chance towards the end of extra time... Yep. You sort of knew it wasn't going to go in. You didn't know how it wasn't going to go in. Now we talked about no one taking chances before at the end of the 90 minutes. We're into three minutes at the end of the 30 minutes added on. Surely no chances. Well, ball down, saved by Dunek. Oh, what oh, a he's save! Going to be pulling in. Dunek what a double save. save to push it over the top of the crossbar. You know, I've called him a few times this season, but that was a save and a half. What a great oh, double save! Oh, wonderful! We should have been out. We should have been out. They should have won the cup there. Shevchenko with the follow-up as well. And two chances for AC well, Milan. And Dudek has earned all the plaudits. He keeps Liverpool in the game at the end. What a double save, John. I'll tell you the what, best Steve, I've ever, ever seen. That's one of the best saves I've ever seen. And that makes me think that perhaps our name just might be on this cup. Even when, I, when you saw it, you, it, it took a little while. You had to see the replay to realise that Dudek had made an absolutely extraordinary save. Yeah. But even as the ball dropped to him, I never thought I was going to put that in. Really? There's just a sense that yes. somehow that ball's not going to go in the net, yeah. and I, I and I as a result of that, I was absolutely certain that Shevchenko would miss the penalty as well. That Were something had really? happened yes. to him. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, it was most odd. It really was. But it was, well, it was uh, it was absolutely fantastic. You certainly couldn't have scripted it. And um, this time, as you say, 
The red hero was goalkeeper Jerzy Dudek, and here's what happened. Shevchenko scored the winner two years ago. He's up against Dudek. Will he hand Liverpool the European Cup? Yeah! <laughs> European champions! Jerzy Dudek with the penalty save. Tears around the Liverpool fans. It's the ultimate final. The ultimate way to win. Liverpool are crowned champions of Europe. Leonard Johansson gives the cup to Steven Gerrard. Yeah! And all those dreams <laughs> come to fruition. <laughs> Steven Gerrard's hands are clasped around the cup like he never wants to let go of it. Well, that was uh, Steve Hothersall there telling us about uh, Liverpool's... Uh, Great win at the Ataturk Stadium. Um, it really was something special, that, Jonathan, as you say. Um, I must say that uh, there are, there well, as I say, there are 10 games in this book, all of them special in their way. Uh, another game you single out, which I saw as well, was again imprinted on my memory Liverpool 5, Nottingham Forest 0 in April 1988. And I remember us. Um, uh, singling out uh, Tom Finney, who we knew was at the game, and we ferreted him out afterwards, and he he came out with that wonderful uh, tribute, saying it's the best um, the best exhibition of football he'd ever seen, which was a, a wonderful quote from such a great player, which I think you've used in the book, haven't you? Yes, absolutely. I mean, it was um, if you think of a of a quality of the opposition as well. I mean, that was a very very good night exactly. for the team, very much so. Um, and that, I mean, if you look at, I think it was the the third of three games between Liverpool and Forest in the space of about, That's right, about it was, two yeah. weeks or ten mm. days, mm. Uh, and the other two have been quite close. Yes, and, they and, had. And then that was just the moment which everything clicked, and and the football that day was absolutely astonishing. I mean, I, I, you know, Liverpool played superb football that that season as a whole with with Barnes and they Beardsley did, I, yes, they did, and, and Houghton, um, but that that really was something extraordinary. I, I think uh, Forest were actually lucky; it was only five that night. Yeah, I mean, you're right. It was just chance after chance after chance. Mm. Steve Sutton makes you know half a dozen he superb does. saves. Yeah. I mean, he was arguably man of the man of the match yes. in a game when his when his team's lost five 0 Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so I mean, you you watch that and it's just I, I, you know it's just one of those those moments of which all ten outfield players are all perfectly in harmony and everything works. Um, and, and yeah, you just felt goals could come in any any second. So. And and also I I, I guess the, the, you know, there's a there's a poignancy to that game uh, yes. that I know it was an evening match but it kicked off in sunshine and a, a game when you could watch Liverpool v Forest in the sunshine and you know there was no tragedy attached to it yeah exactly and now whenever you s- Liverpool play Forest you, you know your mind automatically goes and, back and it to was in an April as well it was a year before the awful tragedy yeah. Yeah, I mean, one yeah. one of the reasons that we you know, we 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 toyed, you know, we we umdenard about this, and we we really sort of um, tormented ourselves with this decision was, did we include Hillsborough as one yes. of the ten games? Yeah. And ultimately, we decided for for two reasons not to. One is that we we really wanted to focus. You know, the, the whole point of doing it in ten games is to examine the football in detail, 
so that that was you know, in terms of the remit of the book. Yeah. The other thing I think to try and compress everything to do with Hillsborough into a single chapter, you couldn't. Just you, you just couldn't no. do it. You no, couldn't you do it couldn't. justice. No. It would be no point no. to it. Exactly. That is something that I'm sure as more revelations come out with the various inquiries, yeah. there will be. I mean, there's already been a couple of great books about Hillsborough, but I think even even more great books will be written on I it. I think they will. And be. it deserve you know deserves their own book. But that, that's why we didn't use it. And then we sort of cover that and we cover that period and the legacy of Hillsborough with Doug Leach's last game as manager of the 4-4 draw against Everton. That's right. Which, of course, was, yeah. was a great game in its That's own another right. One. Indeed, indeed. If only we had time. But uh, but people can buy the book. But before that, I just want to say we mentioned Bill Shankly earlier. Our next production of the Bill Shankly story is at the superb new Atkinson Theatre, Lord Street, Southport, Friday, February the 7th. I'll be joined on stage by Ian St John, Ian Callaghan and Chris Lawler. Tickets are on sale now. They make a great Christmas gift for family or friends. Price 16 pound with 13 pound concessions available in person at the theatre or by calling 01704 533333 or online at www.theatkinson.co.uk um, Jonathan Wilson's book is titled The Anatomy of Liverpool a History in Ten Matches. It's published by Orion in hardback at £18.99 and in e-book at £9.99 and also a perfect Christmas present. Just very quickly, Jonathan, of the ten, what would be the favourite for you? I mean, I know some are defeats, but what would you pick out as the game? Well, if I can give you two, if I can cheat slightly, I'd say Istanbul, Pyrrhicus, yeah, I, I, it was one of the most extraordinary nights of my life. Never mind in football, just an extraordinary thing to be at, and, and the sense of privilege you sometimes get as a journalist sure, to yeah. not me to be at a great occasion, to be paid to be at a great occasion. Absolutely. And the the other one, I think the the Red Star was then Leicester game in '73, uh, largely because it, you know I, I sort of knew a little bit about that from the from the Serbian side, from Yugoslav side. Yes. Um, and Miljan so, Miljanic was the manager, wasn't it? He was, yeah, yeah. yeah. He, a man who'd, who'd um, uh, very respected manager. Yeah, and he 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 says a lot of his football education came in England in 1966. He took a camper van, packed it with with tins really? of food from Yugoslavia, and drove to England Did he really? wow. and drove around the World Cup venues. Yeah. yeah. So those um, two, they're interesting choices. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, and so, so you know to find out from from those players, people like uh, Jovan Cimovic, uh, Begicevic. Um, yeah, who were great players in their own right. Yeah. Begicevic went on to play at New York Cosmos with you know, Dennis Stewart and, and people like that. Yeah. To find out from them what they thought of Liverpool, what they thought of English football at the time, I think they'd they they played Tottenham the previous year yeah. and and sort of had an idea of what an English stadium was like. But obviously Anfield's yes. on a European yeah. night is yeah. quite different to White Hart Lane. Well, that's so that was a, you know, another another perspective into it. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for coming on, Jonathan. It's a super book uh, and it's available in the shops. Uh, so from Jonathan Wilson and his book The Anatomy of Liverpool, a history in ten matches and from myself, John Keith from this edition of Strictly John Keith goodbye Strictly John Keith City Talk 105.9